You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. The Bohemians were nonconformists by choice or by circumstance, and they eased their isolation by forming intense friendships with one another. San Francisco was where their story began, but it would continue in Boston, New York, and London, in the palace and the poorhouse, in success and humiliation, fame and poverty. They benefited from the disruptions of the 1860s as the Civil War shattered the moral certainties of antebellum America and created rifts in the culture wide enough for new voices to be heard. At the same time, the war made America smaller. It connected California to the rest of the country with railroad track and telegraph wire, and fostered a spirit of nationalism that brought East and West closer together. San Francisco emerged from its seclusion, and its writers found a wider readership at a moment when the nation sorely needed new storytellers. Ben Tarnoff is the author of A Counterfeiter's Paradise, The Wicked Lives and Surprising Adventures of Three Early American Moneymakers. His new book is The Bohemians, Mark Twain and the San Francisco Writers Who Reinvented American Literature. Thank you for joining me, Ben. Thanks so much for having me. This is such an interesting book. When I think of books about history or figures in history, usually that tracks the politics of the time, but this is a very specifically a cultural history. And in that way, it seems really familiar to us. Yeah, I wanted to try to find out why these young writers in America at the time had an opportunity to do something different and managed to connect to people in this very new way. And so much of that led me into the cultural history of how did American culture transform itself during the Civil War and in those turbulent decades after the Civil War. I really love the way that you set up the book in terms of describing the Civil War, and you gave it a very familiar reference, and that reference, I think, changes the accessibility of both the history and the book. Talk about coming up with that reference and, and then the way it plays out again and again throughout the book. Well, you know, I, I have always thought of the Civil War, I think, as most of us do, as basically dead bodies on the battlefield in terms of the, the military victories and defeats and Grant and Sherman. And the aspect of the Civil War that I got to know more of as I researched the book was really the cultural aspect. I made a comparison in the introduction between the Civil War and the Vietnam War in terms of these cultural revolutions that occur in America where a younger generation is suddenly challenging an older generation. And all of this conventional wisdom on the battlefield and politics and business and literature is being challenged and new rules are being written. So it's a very unique time to be a young writer. And in terms of being a writer, the opportunities for writing were exploding in America then, and, and that's something that I never really realized. So talk a little bit about the literary landscape and the journalistic landscape. They were kind of one and the same at that point, weren't they? Exactly. There are these new opportunities for writers in the Civil War and post-Civil War period, particularly because there are tons of newspapers and print periodicals 
and books being published more and more every year. And that's because of rising literacy. It's also because printing technology has gotten a lot better. It's getting cheaper to print better and better items. And those things really converge to create this newspaper and print boom. And you can also have the railroad network and the telegraph network, which allow people and products and information to travel around the country faster. So you have the beginnings really of what you could call an early print internet, where newspapers are sending pieces to one another, items can go viral, you have a much more integrated country that are all reading the same things. So this media landscape is really being transformed, and that creates a lot of opportunities for young writers who want to make a living and want to break into this. You know, when you said uh, media print internet, it made me think, too, that because uh, at that time the uh, copyright laws were still not really being either enforced or uh, even viewed, uh, that there was a lot of the kind of cut-and-paste copying that we now see on the internet that the internet makes so easy. That was the first opportunity for that to occur then, too. Exactly, exactly. And that's happening very early. You know, there's an early newspaper tradition called The Exchange, and that allows editors of various papers to send each other their papers for free through the post. And that obviously accelerates when you have the telegraph network and the rail network set up as well. But it means that there is this a web, essentially, of different papers throughout the country who are reprinting one another's work. And that also allows, like today's internet, a writer to have a real platform. For instance, Twain's first emergence as a household name is when he writes the Jim Smile and his Jumping Frog sketch, which is published in New York. Twain is living in California at the time. But the piece goes viral. It's reprinted all over the country. You know, it's picked up from one paper to the next, just like today we would reblog something or retweet something. So Twain really benefits from this new media landscape. You know, it, one of the things that really interested me was that this book is a great demonstration of, I think, a revolution that's occurred in maybe in the last 40 years or so of the way we write history, of writing history as Rather than just reciting facts or reciting timelines, you do a great job of writing history as telling stories. And that's one of the things I think that makes this book so engaging and interesting. I'd like you to talk about the little stories that you have in this book, that you found in this book, and the big stories that it tells, and how you discovered those and interlinked those, how those uh, led from one to the other. Well, I just became so fascinated with the individuals involved, really, and I, I wanted to find a way to tell their stories. You know, obviously, Mark Twain is the central character, and he I was always been drawn to Twain throughout my life, but particularly this Twain, who I get to explore in the book, is the younger Twain. And as a young writer myself, I was curious about how Twain emerged as a writer, and I felt a kind of personal interest in that, you know. Um, and what I found was that he was surrounded by these other young writers who were also facing a lot of the same challenges, who were trying to make it on the national scene as Western writers, who participated in this extraordinary social experiment of San Francisco in the 1860s, which is this very unique frontier town with its own idiosyncratic culture. So there's so many stories that started to intersect in these very interesting ways. 
And I, and I think the, um, you know, the desire to tell history through narrative is really trying to make people feel as if they were there. You know, how do you build a time machine? And it feels like narrative is the best way to do that. One of the writers that is part of this group you mentioned is Bret Hart, and he was really enamored of this idea of California as a melting pot. We've always thought of America as a melting pot, but California at the time was that distilled down to something even more extreme. It was extraordinarily cosmopolitan at the time, and that's really the legacy of the gold rush, because the gold rush brings people from China, from South America, from many countries in Europe, from Australia. So California really becomes a host to this very global world, and San Francisco in particular is very global. In 1860, about two-thirds of the city's adult male citizens were foreign-born, just to give you a sense of how cosmopolitan that population was. And for Hart and many of other writers, this really helps boost their creativity. You know, one of the things that struck me too was that the presence and the backdrop of the of the Civil War, like every other war that we've ever embarked upon, it was supposed to be quick, easy. <laughs> Just we, we'd get in, we'd get out, a few decisive battles, that's it. Exactly. Yeah, I guess we always have this delusion that war will always be brief and glorious, and then we get into it and it's bloody and miserable. Uh, and that's the experience in the Civil War, absolutely. I mean, both sides believe that they will have a fairly swift victory, um, that you know there'll be a few battles and, and the Confederacy will be allowed to secede or the Union will de- defeat the Confederacy. Of course, that's not the way the story goes. And that shift is felt in California, because in California, at the beginning of the Civil War, the state doesn't feel a very deep connection to the rest of the Union. There's actually a vocal minority, particularly in the southern part of the state, that either wants to join the Confederacy or start its own independent republic. But most Californians basically don't care. I mean, there's this level of apathy about the nation because California is so isolated. It takes so long to get to California, and so many Californians are of foreign origin that there isn't a ton of national feeling. And what happens over the course of the Civil War is that a spirit of nationalism really builds up in California, particularly due to the efforts of a few individuals like Thomas Stark King, who's a minister who I spend quite a bit of time with in the book, who's a very important political figure at the time, but is also a wonderful mentor to many of San Francisco's writers. He's a really great character in this book. I love how he draws the four characters in this book together and He's even has a mountain in Yosemite That's right. after him. So talk about this <clears throat> this man who had such a huge influence, but he wasn't a very big man himself, was he? No, he was quite short and kind of very sickly looking and uh, didn't have terrific health. And uh, he he's actually starts off in Boston. King becomes a pretty well-known Unitarian preacher in Boston and then comes west to California in the early 1860s and becomes the the head of the Unitarian Church in San Francisco. And he becomes this fiery proponent of the Union and of Lincoln. And uh, he tours the state constantly. He's actually reciting many of Hart's poems at these public gatherings. He becomes this very visible and very charismatic and extremely powerful speaker for California, not only staying in the Union, but 
inspiring the spirit of nationalism in Californians that had really been missing? You know, one of the things that uh, really interests me in books like this is when you're looking at a work of history, uh, there's a presumption that, uh, that events happened that happened more than 100 years ago are events we should all know about. And yet you create a really palpable sense of tension. We really want to find out what happened to these people, who they are. So I'd like you to talk about writing and to a certain sense rewriting history so that in here in the 21st century, we can't wait to turn the pages and find out what's going to happen to this kind of motley crew of four people who would probably be a rock band today. <laughs> I love that. They would start a great rock band. No, I, I think with history, you know, I always want to read history as if I don't know how it will end and that I'm experiencing it as if I lived it at the time. And I think that's what's most appealing about writing history as narrative is that you can connect to this human element of it and see people, even Twain, who I think we rightly kind of worship as this great cultural icon and this great writer, but we can see him really as a person full of flaws and vulnerabilities and frustrations and his own very rocky path to success. Uh, I, I think it humanizes things a bit and uh, it, it allows us to to really bring ourselves back into time. You know, I think for me, that's that's always the goal is how do I get people to time travel with me? And as part of this time travel, you give us two other characters who are equally important at the time that we don't know quite as much about now. So I'd like you to talk about first about Charles Warren Stoddard, who's just such a really great character. Stoddard is really the boy wonder of the Bohemians. He's the youngest of the group, and he's quite shy. He kind of suffers from a lot of anxiety and, and bad nerves. And he starts off actually as a poet and tries to write a bunch of poetry. And this brings him into contact with the rest of the Bohemian scene, particularly with Hart and Twain and Coolbrith. Um, and they all really take care of him. I mean, he needs a lot of encouragement. Um, he needs a lot of guidance and kind of a lot of editorial counsel. And the, the central fact of Stoddard's life is that he's homosexual. And he can't really express that openly in San Francisco of the time. What he does is he travels a lot to Hawaii. And in Hawaii, he has these relationships with young Hawaiian boys and writes about them in this kind of coded, very funny way in a book that becomes the South Sea Idols, which is these basically these travel sketches of Stoddard's experiences in the South Seas. And that really becomes his best book and his best known book. So that's kind of how he finds his voice. But compared to Twain and Hart, you know, who achieve this tremendous success, Stoddard never quite gets to that point. You know, he publishes this wonderful book, but then kind of wanders throughout Europe and the Middle East for five years, comes back to San Francisco briefly, and then keeps wandering around the country. So he really lives this kind of itinerant life for the rest of his days. He shared Hawaii in common with uh, Twain, who also traveled there. He did. He did. They both loved Hawaii. Twain actually has this great experience in Hawaii where he goes as a newspaper correspondent, and he loves it. He, he relaxes in Maui. Uh, but he also has this great journalistic scoop because when he's there, there is a lifeboat full of men who have just washed ashore in Hawaii from a clipper ship called the Hornet, which had had this spectacular shipwreck. And Twain interviews the survivors 
and sends it to the newspaper in California he's working for. And that's the first report of that shipwreck in the country. And again, like that Twain sketch we mentioned before, it goes viral. You know, it's reprinted all over the country. He turns it also into this great magazine piece for Harper's. So Hawaii is actually a very important moment in Twain's development. It also gives him really the training in travel writing that will later produce The Innocence Abroad, which is really his first major book. You know, I've also really liked Ina Donna Coolbrith, who was the the niece of Joseph Smith. And uh, as a result, she was subject to some pretty seriously scary prejudice. She was. She was. You know, Mormons at that point in time were really violently persecuted. And she's born in Illinois. Actually, the latest research is that Joseph Smith was not only her uncle, but was um, her mother was one of his wives. Um, so she was, she's very deeply connected, let's say, to, uh, to early Mormonism. Um, but what happens is that her father dies shortly after she's born, and her mother remarries and decides to leave the church. And that's why they go west to California. And they arrive in the 1850s, and they settle in Los Angeles, which at the time is a tiny village of a few thousand people. And that's where Ina starts to write poetry. She becomes kind of a well-known young poet in the Los Angeles literary scene. You know, one of the things I thought that was really fascinating, I loved about this book, was your vision of the literary scene and of the magazines and newspapers. And you do a great job of giving us the feel for how uh, nuanced each of these journals were in their approach and how important they were. It's very, very much, it reminds me so much of the internet today. I think the comparison is really useful, actually. You know, I think we often think of newspapers and the internet as so opposed, obviously, because the internet has destroyed so many newspapers. But when you think about how it's structured in terms of all of these nodes that can retransmit information from one another, it really is a useful parallel. And the internet, you know, just I think the other useful parallel I would say is that it gives all of these writers a platform that people can connect and in this very direct way, which is essential for these aspiring writers. And I would say, particularly in California, particularly in San Francisco, which has a ton of newspapers, it also gives writers a way to make a living, which I think the internet doesn't do as good a job of, unfortunately. But you know, if you're a young writer in San Francisco, you know, in 1860, there's say about 50 newspapers in the city. So you can really make a living as a writer. And it's not going to be a great living. And if you're a freelancer, as Twain is, you're often scraping by and, you know, living on debt and living in poverty. So it's not to overly glamorize that period of time. But the fact that there were so many papers means that you could have a class of professional writers. And that really made a difference in terms of cultivating a literary scene in the West. You know, one of the things that I found so interesting, too, was the nuanced difference between the different journals, they, they're termed newspapers, but a lot of them are more what we would now call literary journals. And I think that that's really interesting that people were so hungry for entertainment that they would be reading, you know, anything, including uh, one another's literature with the snarky remarks of the editor in one in one case of one journal. Exactly, exactly. It's this fun thing about history where the words we have now aren't always the best ones to describe what was going on. We think of newspapers and journalists, 
And, you know, we use those words to describe the California newspaper scene or Twain as a journalist. But Twain was not a journalist in the sense of a New York Times journalist. And these newspapers, like the Golden Era, which is for a period of time the great literary paper of the West, has nothing to do with news in the modern sense. It's really, as you say, this kind of grab bag of little amateur poetry here, some mining news here, maybe a few lines about how the Civil War is going in the East. I mean, it's this incredibly eclectic kind of miscellaneous universe of print. Uh, And what happens actually over the course of the 1860s as this bohemian scene emerges is that a slightly narrower type of paper emerges when they have the Californian, when they have the Overland Monthly. The bohemians are trying to create something a little bit closer to what we would think of as a truly literary periodical. You know, uh, I was so interested by the the way that you wrote about this this uh, literary scene uh, because we have you have some really great create some really great characters, and I love Joe Joe Lawrence. So tell us about Joe Lawrence, who was the the head honcho for the Golden Era. So Joe Lawrence is this really universally beloved kind of grandfatherly figure, despite being in his early 20s. He is this kind of Santa Claus type. And he runs really the biggest paper before the Bohemian scene really emerges. The biggest paper is the Golden Era. Based in San Francisco, they have these wonderfully lavish offices. And Joe Lawrence is a great editor and really cultivates people. He brings people out to drinks at these great hotel bars when prominent visitors from the East, particularly from New York, come to San Francisco, he hits them up and enlists them for contributions to the golden era. So he's a very sophisticated impresario of the time. And everyone loves him, which is really, in in that world, which is, of course, filled with writers, it's a very competitive world. To have one person that everybody loves is a real accomplishment. I love, too, the sense of... uh destiny that you bring to this in terms of these the four bohemians on the west coast coming together uh and their kind of counterbalance on the east coast so i'd like you to just talk about uh as a writer uh plotting this out in terms of the way you uh laid out the exposition so that we get to so that we're really engaged with all of these people we just cannot wait for them to meet well you know i wasn't sure how it was going to connect, really. I mean, I I obviously researched a fair amount before I started writing. But for me, part of the fun is keeping a sense of discovery myself as I'm writing. So it feels like I'm learning things with the reader kind of at the same time. And as I was building these individual stories of Twain and Hart and Coolbrith and Stoddard, I wasn't quite sure how they would intersect uh, and it was really fun to see how they did. And they and they don't always intersect the way that I had hoped they would. You know, I think there's a lot of serendipity involved. You know, I don't get to control it as much as I'd like. You know, one of the things, too, that interested me was you comment on the import of the Western landscape on the storytelling and the writing style and the literary style and the whole uh, artistic vision of the world. So talk a little bit about that. And you're now immersed in, you know, the 150th year of, of said vision. I think it's essential. And I think it's something that we don't think about often enough. You know, 
our media world is concentrated in New York City. And even with something like the internet, New York, I think, exerts a very powerful influence over the media and the culture in a way that Boston may have played that role in the 19th century. But what's important to keep in mind, I think, is that California and the American West is really a very different place. You know, that, that Wallace Stegner writes beautifully about this, and I quote him in my book, about how early migrants to the West have trouble writing about the experience because they can't quite describe the monumental scale of the mountains, the color of the soil, the shape of the sky, that these are, this is really a different planet. You know, people say that all the time when they kind of land at SFO, it feels like a different planet, but it really is a different planet. So I think we can expect that we should write about it differently out here than a New Yorker would write about New York or a Bostonian would write about Boston. And I think the lingering kind of cultural power of the East Coast has prevented us from taking that on quite as much as we could have. I think things have obviously improved. I mean, there's more of a perception of the West as a literary place. But I think we still struggle with that a little bit, that the East is considered the the kind of more serious place culturally, and the West is considered a place that has less to offer culturally. I think that that perception remains. And that's unfortunate, I think. But I do think this book does goes a long way towards changing that. And one of the things I thought that was so interesting was after reading this passage about the West and these big landscapes, then I started thinking about Mark Twain's inclination to tell tall tales, and in particular his literary or journalistic beginnings as one of the first hoaxers. And I, I, I love the petrified man hoax. And he kept digging himself deeper holes till finally he got in a fair amount of trouble. He really did. Yeah, he loved hoaxes. And he particularly loved hoaxes that made a lot of people very angry. And he, he kind of does, he's really a repeat offender in this department. He keeps hoaxing, kind of doesn't learn his lesson. And then finally, in 1864, he does this hoax that really gets him into trouble which is a fundraiser that the ladies of Carson City, which is really kind of the only high society that Nevada has, they're throwing a fundraiser for the Sanitary Commission, which is essentially the precursor to the American Red Cross. It raises money for wounded soldiers in the Civil War. And Twain says that that money is actually being redirected to a miscegenation society somewhere in the East. And as you can imagine, that produces this huge fireball of outrage, essentially. And miscegenation, you know, I spent a little time in it in the book. That's a word that has a very specific meaning in 1864, because it's actually been coined the year before by uh, Democratic, you know, capital D Democratic operatives who are trying to slander Republican politicians. And there's a lot of fear, I think, among whites in the North who support the Union and support Lincoln there's a lot of fear after the Emancipation Proclamation that, you know, we're now fighting this war to abolish slavery, uh, to free the slaves. And of course, that produces draft riots and that, you know, there's a lot of unrest associated with that. So suffice to say, Twain finds the sorest, most sensitive subject he possibly can and just puts his finger on it in this very provocative way. And it produces this kind of outcry against him, which is a major factor in his decision to leave Nevada and move to San Francisco in the spring of 1864. And when Twain moved to to San Francisco, he he started out living the high life. Then when he 
finally got himself a job, he was not too happy, was he? He was a courtroom reporter. That's kind of hard to picture. It is. It's impossible to picture Twain having a normal day job, really. And he hated it. You know, he, you know, as you mentioned, when he moves to San Francisco, he's got all this mining stock from Nevada, and he figures he'll just make a living as a speculator, that he'll sell the stock and get rich. And of course, it doesn't go his way. So he has to get a day job. And he works as a reporter for the San Francisco Morning Call. And the call sends him to the courtroom, sends him all over the city, sends him to several different theaters at night. He says it's awful drudgery for a lazy man. You know, he really hates the job. And he ends up getting fired, you know, in the nicest possible way by an editor who recognizes his talents but knows that this is not the place for him. Now, both Twain and Hart and Stoddard were all printer's devils. That's right. Uh, Stoddard, I'm not sure, was a printer's devil. Twain and Hart certainly were. And, you know, many other other figures were at the time. Whitman was, um, back in the day, Franklin was. Franklin calls the print shop the poor boy's college. You know, for decades in American history, if you can't afford to go to a, have a real formal education, you could become a typesetter's apprentice or a printer's devil. And that would give you a certain education, really. You would learn how to read and write, obviously. You would have the opportunity to put a few of your own contributions into print, which is how both Twain and Hart start writing, is that they're typesetters, but in the off hours, they can scribble a few sketches and put them into the paper. So it's really an opportunity for people who don't quite have the same resources as someone who could go off to a fancy college to become a writer. Hart was so accomplished that he was accredited with composing directly with the moving type. That's right. That was that was the myth about Hart is that he uh, he was such a great writer that he composed directly into type. He didn't have to write it down first. <laughs> now, one of the this Bohemian Revolution really turns to a certain extent around two very very famous short stories. Uh, so I'd like you to describe each of these short stories and talk about. Uh, how they came into being and what they led to for each of the writers, Hart and Twain. Well, for Twain, it was really Jim Smiling as Jumping Frog, which is the sketch that in 1865 really gives Twain this national status for the first time. People know who he is. And it's this piece that's reprinted throughout the country and is a really crucial moment for his rise. And it's also an important moment for his literary evolution because it marks this juncture, I would say, in his career where he's discovering the literary power of the West, that he's taking these materials that have always been with him, but that he's found particularly useful forms of in California, things like frontier humor and tall tales and the irony and the rambling flow and the dialect of these communities He's using those building blocks, really, and putting them into literature for the first time. And Jim Smiley, I think, is really the beginning of the process that will produce Huckleberry Finn, that this is a moment where Twain is discovering what's unique and powerful and revolutionary about his literary style. For Hart, the moment comes a little bit later. The Luck of Roaring Camp, which appears in 1868, in the Overland Monthly, which is the paper that he's editing at the time. That's really for Hart, his big literary breakthrough. And just like for Twain, story is very popular. 
it majorly raises Hart's national profile and creates the possibility of him going east later and taking this very high-paid job at the Atlantic Monthly. And for Hart, I think the process is similar, where Hart has also been trying to figure out a way to make use of these literary materials of the West. You know, what makes the West unique compared to the East? How do you, as a Western writer, tap into this extraordinary sense of possibility and turn it into literature? And Hart uses many of the same materials. He's accessing frontier humor. He's using this particularly dark kind of irony and almost sick humor that flourishes in the communities of the West. He's also making deep use of dialect and this kind of vernacular homespun metaphor and slang that Twain also draws from. So for each of them, I think many of the sources are the same, but of course Hart and Twain are very different writers. And Hart makes, I would say, a more limited use of those materials. He can't quite take it as far as Twain does. Twain was also writing for somebody who was very famous at the time, Artemis Ward. Now, is that the character name given to the assistant in an old TV show, The Wild Wild West? I think you're right. I think you're right. So, talk <laughs> I think if about, you Googled it, that, that's what would come up first. <laughs> uh, talk about Artemis Ward and, and who he was. He was the first stand-up comedian. He was. He was an enormously popular comic. You know, Abraham Lincoln loved Artemis Ward. Actually, before he presented the first draft of the Emancipation Proclamation to his cabinet, he insisted on reading one of Ward's sketches aloud to this kind of very confused members of the cabinet. So he's, uh, he's a very popular comic writer and comic performer. He does these lecture tours where he really is doing what we would think of as stand-up comedy today and is a major inspiration for Twain, both as a performer and a writer. And Ward belongs to this generation of comics who are achieving this incredible level of national success and are doing so partly by drawing on these frontier traditions. Ward is actually from Maine, but he's picking up on a lot of oral storytelling traditions that are coming out of the South, particularly the Southwest, where Twain is from, of course. So there's a moment in American culture, kind of in the mid-19th century, where all of this humor that's kind of bubbled up from the frontier is starting to break into the mainstream. And you can see it on lecture stages. You can see it in newspapers in the East. You can hear it in Lincoln's uh, cabinet meetings. So it's achieving a certain level of national recognition, and that's ideal for Twain, because just as Twain is emerging on the scene, people know this tradition, and Twain can manipulate it and use it in interesting ways. Well, one of the things that struck me as I was reading some of the scenes from this book, they're really vivid scenes. You do a great job of creating the ambience and the atmosphere uh, of the 19th century, and and the parallels to the 20th and 21st century are, are striking. Uh, when I see uh, Mark Twain in front of, uh, on a stage, you, you just kind of have to think, the guy was a rock star. He was, definitely. He definitely had a rock star mentality, too. Mm-hmm. I mean, particularly as he becomes a little bit more famous. I mean, kind of throwing temper tantrums in hotel rooms, you know, drinking heavily late into the night. He would have been a great rock star. He, got, he had a lot of the behavior. Uh, now, when he went traveling to, on the travels that would eventually result in Innocence Abroad, he met somebody who would help him also create that, too, didn't he? 
Yes, absolutely. Well, he meets, you know, it's a fantastic period in his life because he meets a lot of people on that trip that will become very important for his later life. Of course, probably the most important is that he meets Charlie Langdon, who is the brother of his future wife. And shortly after their return to the East, you know, he, he's he's hanging out with Charlie and his family and gets to meet Olivia or Livy, who he falls madly in love with and basically proposes to immediately and is rejected <laughs> and courts for a year or so until she finally decides to say yes to him. You know, I also really liked the founding of the Overland. So I'd like you to talk about that kind of triangle that that Hart had with uh, Colbreth and uh, Stoddard and, and and the importance of that to all of them because they were really there for one another. They really were. Yeah, and the Overland Monthly is really represents the height of this bohemian moment in San Francisco. It's a monthly literary magazine, and it's really intended to be a challenger to the Atlantic Monthly, which is in Boston and at that time is really the most prestigious literary magazine in America. So the Overland Monthly is controlled by this triad, really, where Hart is technically the editor, but he has Stoddard and Coolbrith as his co-pilots, and they call themselves the Overland Trinity. And they really do everything together. You know, they all have keys to the editorial offices. They edit together. They plan issues together. All three of them contribute quite a lot of pieces to the magazine. It's an amazing moment in the development of the West because this is a time when San Francisco has finally created a platform that can really match the platforms in the East. You know, they're doing their best work. They're no longer feeling kind of insecure or inadequate compared to the East. They're really created their own literary world. And and it's it'll be a great magazine, but unfortunately that moment is quite brief because Hart in 1871 is lured away to the East and he never comes back. You know, for all that San Francisco played this important part, the wilds of the West, uh, in particular California, Tuolumne County, who knew? Jackass Hill. Talk a little bit about the cabin at Jackass Hill. Well, the cabin at Jackass Hill is called the headquarters of all the Bohemians visiting the mountains. It's what Dan DeQuill, who's Twain's friend from Nevada, calls it. Hart actually visits in the 1850s. Uh, before Twain visits in the 1860s. And this cabin is owned by the Gillis brothers. There's Jim Gillis and Steve Gillis and Billy Gillis. There's at least three Gillises. And these are Southerners who live in California and Nevada and become very close friends of Twain's. And Twain's journey there is, is the most significant. He goes to Jackass Hill actually because Steve Gillis, who he's living with in San Francisco, gets into this bar brawl and beats up this bartender, and it's not clear if the bartender is going to live, so Steve has to get out of town. So Steve runs off back to Virginia City, Nevada, which is where he was from before, and Twain, who's signed this bail bond that he obviously can't pay if Steve jumps bail, decides he needs to get out of town too. So he does that and ends up at Jackass Hill. Uh, which is really in the old California mining country, the kind of old motherlode area. And at this point, you know, in the mid-1860s, the gold rush is basically over. You know, that most of the gold has been taken out, and the people that remain in these settlements are kind of the people who couldn't get out. They're kind of these marooned miners, as Twain calls them, where they're digging 
just barely enough gold from the ground to cover their grocery bill, but they're not getting rich. They're kind of barely subsisting. But they love to tell stories, particularly at the tavern in Angel's Camp, where Twain visits with the Gillis brothers. And he listens to these tall tales, and that's where he hears this wonderful tall tale about the jumping frog that inspires his story. And it's possible that Twain had heard that story before. It's a tale that had been around kind of in the Western oral storytelling tradition. But this is the place where Twain's awareness of that story and his desire to take frontier humor into a deeper vein really crystallizes. You know, one of the things, as I, as I read this, I couldn't help but think of how the East Coast has created its grip and maintained its grip through the centuries, really, with uh, the Atlantic Monthly and, and Harper. So I'd like you to just talk about that kind of, that I, these guys are still around and they're still just as important now as they were then. Well, it's interesting, you know, I mean, California, there was a ceiling in California that Hart and Twain hit the ceiling and they had to go east because they felt that if they wanted to get richer, if they wanted to be more successful, if they wanted to be more prestigious, they would have to go east and court the eastern establishment. And I think, as you say, there is still this cultural power in the east that I think endures, but it's hard, I think, to locate it as precisely as you could before, because the culture has become so kind of diffuse that it's hard to point to the Atlantic Monthly, or I guess you could point to the New Yorker maybe, but that there's not there's not a central hub in the way that there was for, for many years to the culture. I mean, I'd agree that geographically the East Coast, particularly New York now, because so many of the publishers are there, because so much media is there, exerts a disproportionate amount of power over the culture. But in terms of those brand names, you know, if you were a young writer in the 1860s, you wanted to get into the Atlantic Monthly or you wanted to get into Harper's or whatever it was. And I'm not sure that there's that single title or a couple of titles that, that have that same power. Well, I think one of the things that this book really brought out for me is the importance of the climate of culture and I think you do a great job of creating that in the beginning and then taking us through the changes of the climate of culture. But throughout all the changes, you keep your eyes focused on the import that has on the lives of the creators and those who consume what the creators create. I think the big lesson for me from the book was that culture really matters, you know, that stories and ideas and literature and poetry and all these things that I think we often think of as, you know, luxury items, really, or, or things that we kind of do in our recreation, that actually these are absolutely essential. You know, when you look at California, the frontier times of California, they had newspapers, they printed their own books, their own pamphlets, they wrote these incredible journals about this frontier world unfolding before them, that they really needed stories. And it wasn't a luxury, it was really a lifeline. And it was how they built a sense of community and started to chronicle these new experiences that were occurring in this kind of far edge of the world. So that to think of culture and literature as anything other than completely essential to the human experience is wrong. 
Ben Tarnoff's new book is The Bohemians, Mark Twain and the San Francisco Writers Who Reinvented American Literature. Thank you for joining me, Ben. Thanks so much for having me. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.